When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. So, are these your notes? These. <laughs> these are your notes about what we're going to say. Uh, anything. Nailed it. It's a short answer. <laughs> so how many novels did you not finish? Oh my from? God, so many. <laughs> it was perfect. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. <laughs> this is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first. We're going <laughs> to Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. I'm Jamie and I'm very excited to be chatting with BAFTA shortlisted film producer Lizzie Gillette. Hi Lizzie, welcome to the show. Hi, really nice to be talking to you. Yes, I'm so excited to have you here. I've never actually had a producer before on the show so it's a a whole new experience for me. We uh, recently had the RNA Awards where you were presenting, very fittingly, the Jackie Collins Award for Romantic thrillers and congratulations to Susan Fortin for uh her winning that award with all that we have lost um how was it being part of something like that oh it was amazing it was such a pleasure you know I think COVID has only exacerbated the feeling of getting mm. back in a room with all these people but I had no idea that the Romantic Novelist Association existed mm. and then when I arrived you know it was just such a such a kind of joyful evening with all these different people dressed in beautiful dresses and shoes and you could just sense that everybody was with their own tribe um there was a lot of solidarity in the room and people were so thrilled you know to to be there and to celebrate the writing it it felt to me like when I go to my documentary festivals like it's like you're with your community um and it was so nice to be able to be part of it yes it's the RNA is such a such a great and supportive um group so let's talk about um Lady Boss, the the, the Jackie Collins uh, documentary. I want to ask about the sort of inception and and how the process and things work. But I think so that I have a better chance of keeping up. Could you offer a little overview as to what your role and sort of day to day is as head of development and producer on these sorts of things? Yes. So I develop and produce feature length documentaries. So, you know, I kind of see them as feature films. Um, So, uh, they, they are intended to play in the cinema and to premiere at festivals and then go to you know TV or Netflix, etc. And what that means is coming up with ideas, working with directors, getting access to stories, and then raising the money and hiring the team and making sure it all happens. Basically, that's what a producer does. It's you know getting everything you know in line at the beginning, the money, the talent, the access, the story, and then getting the train going and then being there and making sure it all comes together at the end um and so with this film Jackie Collins's daughters had approached Passion Pictures which is where I work mm-hmm. about collaborating on a documentary and you know instantly we could see it was just an amazing story Jackie had sold 500 million books yeah her life story is just wonderful you know the images in the archive that the family had were astounding and so Laura Ferry the director and I embarked on this amazing process of really getting to know the family and trying to really understand who Jackie was and what is the story that Laura as the director really wanted to tell 
yeah, it was it was just such a privilege and a pleasure to go out to LA and look through their family archives and all the lists that Jackie had kept. You know, she kept absolutely everything. So it was a, a treasure trove. That must make your life easy when you find your subject matter and you go there and you suddenly find that the whole thing's been documented for you. It does in a way, but then you could say, you know, with writing novels as well, like you've kind of got everything at your fingertips in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's about how do you tell that story and how do you make it interesting? And for us, you know, Jackie Collins had a narrative of her own life um, that she always said exactly the same on all the TV shows, you know, I'm a strong woman and women can do anything, but that didn't really get at what had actually happened in her life, which was that she had a lot of trauma. You know, she had a very traumatic first uh, marriage and then a very difficult final relationship. And so that for us was really interesting because it showed us that, you know, women, no matter how successful you are and how strong and brilliant, you can still be vulnerable and make bad decisions and get into quite toxic relationships. Um, So that was part of what we wanted to tell. And also this idea that feminism is for anybody. And Jackie Collins is a complicated feminist for some people because, you know, her books are all about sex and she wears lipstick and she's obsessed with power and money. And what we wanted to convey in the film is that feminism isn't just for left-wing kind of progressive types, that you can be, you can kind of define your own brand of feminism. Um, and, And that was a really powerful theme running through the film. Yeah, uh, it comes through really, really well. Did you, were you familiar with much of her work sort of before doing this or was it a sort of exciting um, tunnel to fall into doing the research for this project? I didn't know any of her work, I'll be really honest. Um, (laughs) And when we first started researching it, you know, I read her first book, The World is Full of Married Men, which Mm. came out in 1968. And if you think of Britain at that time, you know, it's pre-Thatcher, you know, it's really astounding that she wrote this book and it's really racy and the girlfriend doesn't want to get married to the married guy she's having an affair with because she just wants to be cool and single and young. And, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot in it and it's quite dark as well. I was quite surprised actually. Um, but I love that book. And then of course I read lady boss, which the film is named after. And, you know, (laughs) my partner did think it was a bit funny. All these late, all these Jackie Collins books, like piling up in our room. (laughs) (laughs) That's. I mean, she was re- a real trailblazer. I, she really paved the way for so much of what modern literature does and can get away with, I think. Yeah, I agree. And she's an incredible storyteller. And that was the, one of the other things we tried to convey in the film that, you know, people sneered at Jackie Collins and there's a kind of inbuilt misogyny against that type of writing. Mm-hmm. And it's almost to say that female desire and female perspective on these things isn't as interesting as like male existential crises, which you know, that we've had enough books yeah. <laughs> on those yeah. topics. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, so, and you know, she, you can't deny the fact that she was a brilliant storyteller. You, you know, you don't sell, you don't write 32 books and sell 500 million books by some kind of fluke or because you're well-connected. You know, it's hard to write a good book. And it's she did one a year, you know, every year. She was incredibly hardworking and really good at her job and, 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 and of course, an amazing businesswoman and built this whole kind of business empire around the books. Yeah. And as you as you kind of um, talked about a little bit there, this sort of persona as well, this character, this this very strong female, you can do anything um, sort of persona, which didn't necessarily reflect the troubles that were in her own life. Mm, I think she realized the value of brand very mm. early on. 
and the value of um, kind of being being a brand as an author and, you know, being photographed and all of that stuff. She, she was almost like ahead of her time in terms of social media because evidently she used to have these dinner parties in LA and she would take a photo of all the people at the dinner party yeah. and then she would get the photos developed the very next morning and post copies of the group, like send the photos by post or get them taxied to everybody's house who was there. So it's almost like now on Facebook, you know, when you tag people and say, oh, wasn't that yeah. great? We were all together. <laughs> she she did that, but like in a kind of analog way, realizing that value of, of networking and kind of framing the, the scene that you're in at all times. Yeah, she would have absolutely been all over social media. She would have killed it. Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned that her, it was her family that approached you uh, for this documentary. And, and and your your work kind of spans quite an eclectic range. Um, most recently, you did The Territory, which is about mm-hmm. the indigenous people's battles to protect the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. And then your your next one is We Still Rise, which is about the women's movement around the world. Are most of your projects sort of brought to you, pitched to you, or do you sometimes go out and, and seek them? Yeah, it's a real mix. Um, lots of people bring in ideas and stories and access, and often it's documentary directors that, you know, I've known and worked with for a long time, and they have, you know, a burning passion to tell a certain story, um, and that that is often how it starts as a conversation. Sometimes, I mean, at Passion as a company, yes, we go after stories all the time, and we have a big team that you know, develops ideas. We've got, you know, a lot of projects. I think we've got 10 things in production or something at the moment. Um, and probably most of those were developed in-house. So yeah, it's a real range. People bring us stories. We come up with stories ourselves and often it's kind of somewhere in between the two in that it comes from a conversation. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you're sort of constantly putting feelers out and meeting with people and, and discussing yeah. new ideas and concepts. It's really fun. It's really fun because anything can make a brilliant documentary. Yeah. You know, but the, the problem with that is that drawing boundaries around it is hard. So, you know, you might be out for your morning walk on the heath or something and meeting someone for a chat and everything could be a potential documentary. <laughs> so you have to try and have a, a lot of kind of, I don't know, internal no's um, because there's only, you know, there's only so many films you can do at any one time. Yes, indeed. I mean, not dissimilar to the publishing industry where Mm. the publishers can only take on so many books. And sometimes, and I'm sure this is the same with when you work, sometimes there is a really great idea, but you're just not going to be able to make it work for various logistical or timing reasons. All the time. Yeah, Yeah. all the time. That's the case. And speaking of parallels with publishing, I was interested to see when you made the climate documentary, The Age of Stupid, Mm. uh, great name the uh you, you set up a crowdfunding scheme to 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 make that how did that work um it was about 2004 and mm. me and the director were thinking how are we going to raise money for this climate change documentary and we didn't want to get it commissioned from for example the bbc because we didn't feel that that was the way to make the strongest film you know the director really wanted this to be hard hitting and independent and so we wanted to raise the money independently Okay. So we kind of had it in our heads that the film would cost half a million pounds to make, um, but we knew that that was too much for us to just raise. So we thought, well, let's raise, you know, a tenth of that. Let's raise 50,000 pounds and get going and kind of go from there. So we came up with this plan whereby we invited um, various people we knew to come to an event and we told them about the ideas for the film and we offered them the opportunity to invest in it. And we had 100 people put in 500 pounds each. 
Okay. And yeah. so that was the first 50,000 pounds. We bought a camera, we started filming, and then, of course, we spent that money. And then, <laughs> so then we kind of expanded the scheme and we offered people to come in at 5,000 pounds for the same percentage of the profits. And then in the last round, people put in 10,000 pounds for the same percentage. So the idea was uh-huh. that if you believed in it right at the beginning, you got a much kind of bigger percentage for yeah. your money. Um, and then when we finally finished the film and sold it, we shared out the money amongst those crowdfunders and amongst the crew and we paid them back over the course of 10 years oh, and wow. <laughs> the people who put in 500 pounds at the beginning they did get their money back the people who put in 10,000 pounds at the end they did not get all the money back you right. know so because the percentages were so low by then but nobody did it to make money you know these people I think we had 350 people and they all did it because they wanted to see the film made and they became huge ambassadors for the film. And a lot of them, it kind of took over their lives for a certain <laughs> period of time. One of them, one of the crowdfunders hired a cinema in Norwich and paid for every ticket and invited all wow. the local council and people really feel that they, and they were, they were a genuine part of it. You know, we used to email them when we were on shoots and get advice and help. And in fact, one funder even loaned us um, business suits to wear to an important interview because we didn't have any posh clothes ourselves. <laughs> um, so right. our, our group of funders was not just financial. It was really our moral support. And it was kind of because we didn't have an institution backing us. It became the crowd that really the village, yeah. I guess, that helped us make the film. It was, it was a really wonderful, wonderful process. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's always, I've always seen crowdfunding, uh, the way it works is the nature of it is such that you're not necessarily doing it to make money. You're doing Mm -hmm. it because you believe and support in the project. And if you get perks, whether that is, you know, returns on your investment or just bits and bobs, trinkets, signed Mm -hmm. stuff, that's, you know, that's just a fun thing, but you're really doing it because you're supporting a project you believe in. Yeah, that's what we believed. And, you know, when we did it, there was no platforms like Kickstarter. You know, I think this was four Mm -hmm. or five years before Kickstarter even launched. So we didn't do the rewards and and we kind of, we just put it very plainly, like it's about making the film, getting the film made. And of course you get a ticket to the premiere and they did get their name in the credits, which I think people liked, but there was just a real sense of momentum and people wanting to be something, be part of something. Yeah. Do you think that crowdfunding route since then has become more prevalent and more sort of indie films and things are being crowdsourced yeah well there was kind of a peak around about 2010 or 11 that's when kickstarter really was starting to gain a lot of traction and people Mm. were raising serious amounts of money um, because we raised five hundred thousand pounds to make the film and then when we finished the film we actually raised another five hundred thousand pounds to finish it yeah and but we it's kind of it has been in a bit of decline since then and you know I wouldn't really personally do a crowdfunding campaign for a film now because the the data shows that 70% of the money comes from your family and friends right so you <laughs> you have to be really willing to ask them and my family and friends have now been asked a lot of times yeah um to back things and you know the amounts are actually not that big now like often people will raise 20,000 pounds or something for post production so it's not going to fund a whole film mm. so yeah for me the amount of work involved compared to the amount of money and support you get it's just it just doesn't make sense for the kind of films i'm doing now Right. So so big sort of established studios are, are not in danger of being dismissed for uh, crowdfunded projects in the future. I don't think so. There was a moment when that looked likely or <laughs> looked possible, but that, that moment does seem to have passed. Yeah, no, that's interesting because 
a similar thing kind of happen is, is mm. sort of happening in publishing well recently there was big ripples as uh, a very big fantasy author in the u.s um set up a kickstarter to publish some books that he'd written sort of mm. um behind the scenes outside of his contracted uh, work with his publisher yeah. and it just it blew up and i think it's at like 20 times the amount he asked for initially and stuff like that wow so, that's cool yeah so i just wonder if those kinds of if will if that will be a sort of exciting thing where people are saying oh maybe this could be a way and then it'll dip down like like you mentioned it's kind of hasn't in, in in film or uh or if that keeps on the up and up we'll have to see and the thing with publishing that's very different is that of course books sell for a lot of money but they don't cost a lot of money to make they sell because of the value of the story and the author but films you know that the actual salaries and the film you know the, the cameras and the locations and all that they cost a lot of money to make yeah. And so if you take, you know, let's say if you had a two million pound budget and then you did a crowdfunding campaign for 50,000 pounds, where are you going to get the rest of the money from and how are you going to guarantee that you can finish the film? So, you know, it does have difficulties in that way. Yeah, because obviously a film requires a whole crew and and teams and many, many, many people, whereas a book can in theory be one person it's never one person but I'm sure it's never one one person. person. Yeah. 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 Okay. So dialing back a bit. Um, being a film producer, such a crucial role within the medium. Uh, and I'm always trying to sort of shed light on the different ways that people get it, can get into uh, professional storytelling because it's such a broad sort of yeah. area. Where did that all start for you? Did you always know you wanted to be a storyteller? No. Um, I, you know, I studied politics and at university and with, mm-hmm. you know, a dabbling of film courses, but more just because that was cool and that's what other people were doing. <laughs> and then I, I did kind of have this sense quite quickly that I wanted to make documentaries. And so I got a job in a local TV station in New Zealand where I'm from. And that was just amazing. As soon as I walked into the newsroom and I saw the way that they were kind of airing the news and cutting between the cameras and I was just completely hooked. I was like, that's it. That's, that's, and, and the same when I saw, um, there's a brilliant documentary called One Day in September, which won the Academy Award and it's actually a passion pictures film, but I saw it when I was 20 and I saw it in a cinema and I just thought, this is what I want to do with my life because it's so entertaining, but it's also really political. And so for me, you know, I've always wanted to have some kind of impact in the world, but not kind of be off in a weird niche. Yeah. You know, I like to do things that people that are entertaining. And that's what I feel I, I'm so proud of Lady Boss, that it's a mainstream, super entertaining film that was, you know, really critically received, well received. And we opened in 40 cinemas and it's on Netflix in America and so on. But really at its heart, it's quite a radical political message about women and women's desire and sexuality and feminism. And that, for me, is the holy grail of of kind of filmmaking um, is to make things that are commercial and entertaining but have s- social value in the world. Yes, I mean, I feel like that's yeah, that's what you hope for in any, no matter what you're doing, whether it's watching something, reading something, listening to something. That's what you're always mm-hmm. hoping for as someone sort of experiencing the 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 art form, whatever it may be. Yes. What advice would you give people? looking to break into a similar career as you? Mm-hmm. Try, try and decide early on what role you want to have because often people approach me and they just, you know, they like documentaries, they want to do something in documentaries, but they perhaps haven't kind of 
interrogated for themselves what they're good at, what they would be best placed to do. You know, the the role of a director and producer is very different, but there's loads of other roles like editors, you know, documentary editors are so in demand at the moment because we've had this huge uh, kind of increase in demand for content from all the streamers. We've had a massive influx of American projects because of the tax relief system in this country. And we can't... You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Um, you know, there's, there's just not enough editors to make all the dramas and all the documentaries. So I would look at, like, what are the roles that you're good at, but also that are kind of growing in terms of demand. Mm-hmm. And, and then... Watch watch lots of docs if you if it's docs or watch lots of dramas and see which are the ones you like and then contact those companies directly and say I saw this you know and I thought it was brilliant because of the, some you know whatever reason I would love to take you out for coffee and you know tell you more or find out more or whatever I think if you can be quite specific at the beginning about the role and then the type of content you want to make it will save you about ten years of <laughs> moving up junior roles in companies that don't necessarily align with your values or your aesthetics. Yeah. Okay. So set, set your sights on a specific area, a specific thing. And then exactly. you, know, you have your target at that point. That's good advice. Would you, um, are you sort of always going to be in documentaries or have you thought about maybe doing drama stuff at some point? I'm docs through and through. I tried to <laughs> okay. tried to do a drama for about four years with um, a long term collaborator and friend of mine, Franny Armstrong, and mm-hmm. it's just it just doesn't suit me, honestly. Because in yeah. drama, you have to get all the money, all the actors, all the script, all the creative. You get everything to line up, and then you kind of put all your chips in, and you kind of hope you know that you can get it off the ground. It's really hard to get a drama off the ground. Whereas with documentary, you can raise a little bit of money. You could shoot a taster tape. You can secure access to your characters like there's all sorts of steps you can do to start the film without having to have everything in place um Mm -hmm. and I really love that kind of chipping away approach and finding the story you know in reality rather than having to have everything perfect in a script before you even start yeah yeah that actually sounds and I know I keep bringing everything back to publishing, but that mm. actually sounds like the difference between submitting a fiction novel versus a nonfiction novel. It's quite similar in the way that you, you with a nonfiction one, you do sort of smaller breakdowns. You you do a little sample, little notes, little bits and bobs versus the whole thing as one presented. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that probably is a good similarity. Well, that's uh, that's really useful advice. And I hope anyone listening who's thinking about that kind of career will will take that under advisement. And that brings us on to the final question, uh, which is, Lizzie, if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book would you take? Well, it's weird because the book that just comes to mind is Jonathan Franzen, The Corrections. Okay. And just because I loved it at the time and I just, you know, I hadn't known other families like mine that were a bit <laughs> bonkers but kind of brilliant and mm-hmm. complex and the family in that book we just, I don't know, I just, I just loved it. I got completely lost in it. And, 
you know, I, I really appreciated it at the time. So that's that's the book that comes to mind. Oh, mate, it's a great choice. And it's those books, the books that, that, that always kind of stay with you, that I think are always the best choices for, for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing. Thank you so much, Lizzie, for coming on the podcast and, and chatting with me and sharing your wonderful experience with um, Lady Boss and the RNA, as well as a bit about your sort of work and, and, and how the industry is. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much. It's lovely to speak with you. Yeah, lovely chatting with you too. And for everyone listening, if you want to keep up with uh, what Lizzie is doing, you can follow her on Twitter at Lizzie Gillette, and that's spelt with two Zs, two Ls, and two Ts. Uh, head over to BBC Player to watch Lady Boss in the UK, uh, Netflix in the US, and it'll be out on other platforms uh, soon at some point, I imagine. It's a really wonderful glimpse into the amazing life of Jackie Collins and everything that she achieved. Uh, Uh, and head over to the RNA's website to check out all the great things that they've got going on over there. To make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow us on Twitter at UK or on Instagram at Podcast. And we'll see you in the next episode. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.